Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz bassist Avery Sharp. He opened up with us about his newest 2019 CD called 400, and it is all about movement from the Middle Passage to the Great Migration North, across to Europe, into the World Wars, and home again in the segregated United States to the upsurge of the freedom movement itself. He started playing piano at the age of eight and also studied accordion when he was younger. He learned both electric and acoustic bass as a teenager, then studied with the great Reggie Workman and all that experience he had with John Coltrane at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. From there, he would play with the best in jazz. From 1984 to 2002, he was a part of McCoy Tyner's trio. He has learned quite a bit over the years, and he has great insights. So please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Avery, thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz. It's an honor to speak with you. Uh, thank you. So I want to talk to you about 400, and I want to know this. What was the artistic vision for this project? Well, I think the artistic vision was to try to... Well, you know, when I write, I always try to uh, have some kind of theme or some kind of meaning. And if you, for some unknown reason, I've kind of been getting on the um, sort of historical thing. Well, I, I know why, because, I mean, I love history. And uh, my sort of last three or four records have been, you know, sort of historical figures. And in thinking about um, the 400th anniversary, of recorded that Africans were brought to the U.S. shores, I just started thinking about the, you know, the whole, you know, the whole history of, of how that came about, and uh, just artistically, I wanted to express that, and you know, so I was thinking about it, it was kind of really difficult, in other words, trying to uh, put 400 years into some sort of musical statement. So I, I kind of approached it more as a musical portrait, meaning that thinking about the music that has been kind of, that came out of that whole, you know, horrific experience, you know, beginning with the, um, you know, the, the uh, American music is, without the African influence, it wouldn't be, would not be uh, American music. So I, I sort of segued it up into 100-year increments, thinking about the arrival you know, 1619 to 1719, and then the colonial period from 1719 to 1819, and then, you know, the antebellum civil war, and, you know, thinking about the, the music that came out of that, uh, the, what I, there's a, a tune that I, I put on the album called New Music, which is basically, you know, ragtime and uh, the music that came out of New Orleans. And then, you know, thinking about the, the next, the last hundred years of 1919 to 2019, which incorporated, you know, World War II, the blues, the apex of the civil rights era, and then to what we have now, you know, with Obama and I don't know what we call this, what we have now, but, uh, and moving forward. So what I want to do is I want to get kind of a historical crosscut of you as a musician and where you came from. And I know that when you started playing music very young in your life, where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in Valdosta, Georgia, <laughs> which I really have, don't know about because my father was in the service uh, in the Air Force. He actually started off in World War II um, and then was in the uh, Navy and then went to the Army, Air Force, and eventually Air Force. But we're originally from the South, and when I was a few months old, he got stationed in Guam. 
I went to Guam for a couple of years and came back to Savannah, Georgia, where I lived for seven years. And people have to remember that was a segregated South when I was born. And then my father was stationed in Plattsburgh, New York. So I went from um, where there was no snow. I think I saw snow one time in a freak snowstorm in Vietnam to Plattsburgh, New York, you know, near the Canadian border where there was nothing but snow. And like I said, being in the segregated South, I didn't have any um, white friends until we moved uh, to New York. And then in 1955, the Vietnam War was called the conflict at that time. It was just beginning. And there's eight of us total, but at the time, my father was, there were seven of us. I'm number six. And he was 39 years old and had fought in World War II. You know, it was a support for the Korean War. And they won sent him to Vietnam. So he was like, yeah, I don't think so. So he didn't want to go back south in 1965. And my mother's a piano player in the uh, church, and particularly the Church of God in Christ, Sanctified Church, Holy Roller. And that's the church that I, that I grew up in. And she did a revival in Springfield, Massachusetts, and told my father about it. She said it might be a nice place if you want to leave the service, uh, because they had um, Westover Air Force Base, was the active Air Force Base, right next to Springfield, Massachusetts at that time. So this was like in April of 1965, and in August 1965, we were in Springfield, Massachusetts. So I went to, you know, like junior high, high school, was raised in the area. So I, I mainly grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I went to the University of Massachusetts. I met people like Max Roach, Archie Shep. They were there. They were living in Amherst at the time. And Reggie Workman was my first base teacher, you know. Reggie Workman played with John Coltrane. And he was coming up from Philadelphia a couple times a week to the University of Massachusetts uh, in Amherst. At that time, it was Fred Tills who started the jazz program later. He wanted help bring people like Max Rhodes there, Horace Boyer, one of my mentors who was also a gospel singer and one of the foremost course historians on gospel music. And, um, you know, it was a pretty, it was a mid-70s, so it was a pretty, it was a special time because during that time, Billy Taylor, I believe, was working on his doctorate uh, the great Billy Taylor, uh, before he became, before his name became a bad word, Bill Cotton was working on his master's and doctorate uh, at that time at the University of Massachusetts. Um, so yeah, it, it was uh, it was uh, really a hot period. So that's kind of, you know, sort of my formulations or the way that I was, you know, where I was raised. And when I got the opportunity to play with people, because of Archie Shep, who took me to Europe, and people like uh, Art Blakey and McCoy started hearing about me, and they wanted me, you know, to, uh, you know, to be in advance. And uh, so most people think that I live in New York, but I just, I stay stayed in Massachusetts because uh, I come from a large family. I have we have four kids, and it was really the only way that I could be on the road in good conscience, you know, knowing that my wife had a good support system. And plus, I was just like Massachusetts uh, culturally, so. Yeah, so you started out on the piano, you learned the accordion, and as a teenager you got into the bass. Why was the bass the instrument that you landed on? Well, I started on piano because, you know, my mother was a piano player, and she was uh, she gave all of us piano, piano lessons, but I was the first one that it kind of stuck with. And then I went to accordion, which was, I was a strange kid. 
but uh, you know, Accordion might have worked maybe in in Louisiana yeah. or New Orleans, but Accordion in Springfield, Massachusetts, just was not uh, was not really happening. But I could fight, so <laughs> people <laughs> left me alone. And then, around, by the time I was like 16, you know, I was uh, listening to a lot of music. Coming out of the Church of God in Christ, my mother was in the church, but my father wasn't. You know, there's a big separation between secular and sacred. And if you're playing music in church, you're not really supposed to be playing music, as they say, for the devil. So anything, you know, jazz, pop music, all that stuff was was not in service of the Lord. But I was fortunate that my father was not in the church, so he bought a lot of, of other music in, into the house. You know, Duke Ellington, uh, Calvin Basie. He was listening to the stuff that my older brothers and sisters were listening to, you know, the stuff from Motown, uh, Stax Records, you know, James Brown, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I wish I could give some esoteric reason why I got interested in the bass, but, I, you know, I was at 16. I was like, you know, a lot of adolescent boys, I was interested in girls, and I thought girls liked bass players. <laughs> so I started, you know, playing bass. Uh, actually, I started playing bass in church, and also I, I had a funk group as well. And uh, so that's kind of really how I got interested in bass. I mean, I always heard a lot of bass lines, you know, you know, being of the uh, beginnings of the TV generation. So all those those shows, you know, those TV shows, I always heard the bass lines and always you know, kind of identified identified with them and loved them. And then listening to all the, the Motown stuff, which was, you know, James Jameson, a great bass player, trying to imitate all that stuff. And... Um, so that's kind of how I, I originally got interested in electric bass. And then I, once I got to college, I guess by today's standards, I really started playing upright bass. Wait, I didn't start upright bass until I was 19 because I met Reggie Workman, a cat played with, with Coltrane, and I started getting more, more and more into jazz. And so that's kind of how I got attracted to bass. So one of your longest musical associations was obviously with McCoy Tyner, and I want to know, what did you learn from him? What was the ultimate, after all the decades and all the shows and all of the stories and everything that you got from him, what did you really ultimately take away from him, not only as a musician, but as a human being? I guess Herbie Hancock kind of summed it up with his, his, uh, his book, Possibilities. I think that's what I got from McCoy. Is the great thing about, really great thing about McCoy is that he's so, he's so secure in his playing that he gives everybody space, which I wouldn't be the player that I, I am today if he hadn't given me so much space. I mean, he would just cut out. You know, a lot of bass players, you know, didn't like that. You know, it's like, you know, the band is playing and all of a sudden, boom, everybody stops. <laughs> there's no chord. There's no rhythm. And, you know, if you're playing with McCoy, I mean, he's played everything up front of the sun, and now you have to solo. And that helped me immensely. Because it made me rise to a certain level. I mean, this is not something that he, you know, sat down and said. It's just something that that he did. And going back to, you know, back to possibilities, I, you know, McCoy never played a tune the same way. We never played. He never did the, the introduction that he would do. He never did it the same way. And sometimes he wouldn't even tell me what tune he's going to play. He would just start the introduction. You know, but there's there's 12 keys. You know, we're in D flat, and I'm like, there could be one of 12 tunes that we play. Then he might give me a, a, a two or three note cadence to let me know what tune it is. But I, I think that the main thing that, that I learned from him 
you know, trying to be try to be a decent human being and and really try to perfect your craft at, at the same time. Uh, I think that's probably why we were together for so long. Our, our personalities are, are similar in that whenever a, a challenge would come up, you know, sometimes people will get all excited and start screaming or yelling and rolling the floor. And I would watch McCoy. He would just look and immediately go to plan B. You know, there's not like, he doesn't spend the energy worrying about the problem. He spends the energy solving the problem right there. And that can be on a life um, level, a life lesson level, and also on a musical level. You know, it's because in the end, jazz musicians, what we are doing, whether we realize it or not, we're problem solved. You know, how do I make the changes of giant steps sound like something? You know, you, you, it's you know, how do I how do I negotiate? How do I navigate those those changes? And that, that's problem solving. We're improvising. We're we're you know we're constantly we're constantly doing that. So I think that you know in, in problem solving, you know, like I said with. Uh, just life stuff, watching stuff on the road, how McCoy dealt with stuff. And he's, like I said, he's not going to be the kind of guy who sits you down and say, oh, this is this. He just does more by example, which was really a perfect fit for me because that's kind of the way I live my life. I don't, you know, I just do by example. You know, I think that's, the, to me, that's the best way rather than, you know, telling people exactly what they should do. You know, once they ask, then you you point out maybe how to get there, but at first you let them kind of figure it out. You've been fortunate to be around a lot of people, a lot of big names over your career. You know, Don Braden, Wint Marsalis, Pat Metheny. There's been so many people that you've played with over the years. You've seen so many changes in jazz throughout the decades. How is jazz doing in 2019? I think jazz is fine. It's the business that's messed up. <laughs> hmm. It's trying to it's trying to figure out how to you know how to make a living with it. Um, um, I mean, we're dealing in you know technology has changed the entire world. It's changed um, music. It's changed the way people are presented with music. I mean, you're dealing with a generation of people who are used to things for free. You know, you just go online. You know, if I wanted to see you know Art Blakey or somebody play, I had to you know save up my little coins and go down to the club and, and, and watch them play. Whereas now, um, you know, you can just go to YouTube and, and see what, what Art Blakey did back in the 1960s or whatever. Um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But that's just the way things, the way things are. I, I think there's, there's a, an abundance of talent now. There's because, of, you know, jazz has been more institutionalized. People are learning the craft. They're coming out and playing, you know, and which is great. So I think there's there's not a lack of talent. There's probably more talent. I think what is lacking is innovation. You know, you don't have people innovating like you did when McCoy came along or before or Bud Powell or Dizzy or, or you know, the music was a, a little, was younger and it was, you know, happening in the moment. You, you you don't have as much of that happening now because it's 
it's just been a, 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 a complete, you know, a saturation of the music. Like I said, there's a lot of talent, but I don't see a lot of innovation. And like I said, the, the business part of it is, 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 has changed. I'm not seeing it change so much. And, um, I mean, you can't divorce the society from the music. You know, the whole push now is to, is the uberization of everything, you know, to make everybody quote unquote independent, uh, contractors, which means you don't have to pay benefits, you don't have to do things that you would have had to done, you would have, would have been done, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So, you know, the, with music now you have, which is a good thing, you have musicians being able to do self-promotion, you know, with, with online, um, and social media. But sometimes I just wonder how that affects the music. You know what I'm saying? It's like you're spending your time now promoting stuff. Where does the art come in at? at you know, how do you, how do you, does that get into the art at some point? You know, I'm just asking a question. I'm not saying yay or nay. I'm just wondering. Yeah. Has that, has that affected the music? Along with the notion that you've seen a lot over your career, I want to kind of get hyper-local with you and ask you, at this point in your life, with everything you've done, all of the places you've traveled in the world, all of the cast you've played with, all of the albums you've released, are you happy with where you're at? Um, no. No, I'm, I'm blessed for what I've done. Um, I'm happy for where I'm at in terms of the accomplishments. I'm not happy with where I'm at in terms of what I want to create because I'm always trying to, okay. So it's like, what have you done for me lately? It's not that I'm not appreciative of what I've done. I'm very thankful for the career that I've had and what I've accomplished, but I'm not ready to be a museum piece, as Louis Hayes used to say. <laughs> it's, really, it's really funny that you ask that because now I'm kind of trying to figure out what I'm going to do from here on until I leave the planet. And what I mean by that is, I give you give an example. I, I think Denzel Washington has done something that I think is pretty cool. You know, he's doing August um, Wilson's play. The last one he did was uh, Fences. But I think he's given him this. He's given himself this task to do every one of of August Wilson's play in film version. That's going to take, you know. At least another 20 years. So he's kind of giving himself a gig for the next 20 years. And I've kind of been thinking, what can I do, you know, because I'm not so much worried about, um, well, I mean, I am worried about money like, like everybody, but I'm more worried about artistically what I need to do from here to the next, you know, however many years I have left on the planet. So I'm trying to find myself with a project that's kind of similar to that, that kind of, has that kind of longevity that gives me something to do until I until I leave. So everything's going to come down to this. I want to get to the essence, kind of the soul of, of who you are, and I want to know this. Everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but you know yourself best. So tell me, who do you think you are? Well, I think. I, I hope I'm a bright spirit. That's, that's what I hope I am. And that's, that's what I try to be. And I, I hope that encompasses... You know, I try to be that first, and I think that kind of dictates the way other people look at me. If I, if I try to be a bright spirit, then I'm, 
automatically I try to be a, a good father, I try to be a, a good husband, I try to be a good friend, I try to be just a, a good citizen, I try to be, uh, you know, as I mean, we have four kids, I, I, I used to tell my kids, I'm sorry you were born into a, this family, but I, you know, I had you so that I could put something positive out here, you know, so you're, your your obligation here, not to me, but just to yourself and to society, is to put something positive and, and to see this place in a better condition than when you found it. What we always think is not doesn't mean that that's what's true. Perfect, man. Avery, hey, thanks again. Good luck with the album, and thank you for all the music that you've given the world the jazz. I appreciate it. Thank you, and appreciate your opportunity. Thanks for listening and tuning into another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Georgia, Massachusetts, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Avery for his time and his music and his stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.